I'd like to open things up uh, now so that um, this is an opportunity for um, uh, everyone to share impressions, reflections, what has been beautiful, difficult, terrible, wonderful, utterly mediocre. But uh, um, you've heard Joseph and myself speaking uh, extensively over these many days, and uh, we've all gathered quite closely together um, during this this time. It's been powerful topics, and uh, yeah, I felt uh, it's been very fruitful and beneficial from the dialogues we've had each afternoon and also just in conversations with, with others. So um, now is the opportunity for uh, everyone to share. So I'll pass these microphones out, and, and uh, we can, uh, we'll just have a... Um, uh, as the spirit moves methodology <laughs> rather than going in any particular order. Italian would be better. <laughs> it's a language with more emotions. And I, I would be laughing, or I, I thought before that the closest thing I felt to express my gratitude would have been singing. Today, the <coughs> there were the bells also today, the bells of ringing bells. And I don't know if I had a form of insight or an acoustic hallucination, <laughs> but <laughs> um, it sort of reminded me of the morning bells that one hears in, in, in Italy when somebody dies. And um, uh, I come from a village. My, uh, with my parents live just very close to a cemetery. So um, during my adolescence, I mm, I would hear <laughs> the the bells can be can be heard in in the old village, and um, uh, there's a, a poem by John John Donne, which um, which I I knew in Italian, and he said something, so I'm, I'm I apologize because I'm translating it from Italian, <laughs> and it's an English poem, <laughs> so <laughs> it says something like. Uh, um, so never ask for whom the bells are ringing, because they are ringing for you too. My own translation. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> the, the word that comes closer to a thank you is always the Tibetan word, as I've said several times to Ajahn Amaru, to Jiching. The translation of Tujiche literally means um, your heart is great, your mind is noble. So whenever Tibetans say thank you, they are saying this. Um, 
last year I was in a retreat in Gaia House, and um, uh, there's in, in the, they've got a walking room meditation. And in the walking room meditation, they've got a skeleton which is sitting in a, in a meditation posture. <laughs> I spent quite some time in that room. And uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, some two lines came to me. Walking many times between death and the Buddha until there is no distance left. Today, during the circle, uh, a variation to these two lines came, and it, it is um, walking many times between death and Buddha until there is no one. Last thing, I've noticed during this retreat that uh, I, I, I wanted to thank you very much. Um, I've not had the chance to meet Catherine, but mm. she has made a couple of comments. Among the others, of a great depth. Um, I've noticed that um, I'm more terrified of losing the people I love than of losing my body, which is quite a scare in itself, but. <laughs> Thank you. Dave, yeah. Until, let's, let's let the, the mic kind of go on its own with person to person and then we kind of have a, a bit of a pause because these are very kind of in-depth things that we're sharing so we don't need to jump up let the mic come up here. Well I think firstly what I'd like to say is a, um, um, a huge thank you to both yourself Arjan and Joseph for formulating what has been, I think, for myself anyway, um, something momentous, I think, is happening, for me anyway. Um, and I applaud the, the way that you've put this together and the uh, quality and the clarity and the comprehensive nature of the teaching that you've given to me. I'll speak personally, um, because everybody else has got their, um, their own point of view on this. Um, it spoke to me with uh, a lucidity that I've um, been striving for over the past years about some very, very difficult ideas and concepts. So I, I'm, I'm very, very appreciative of what, um, what you've taught and the way in which you've taught it. So thank you very much. For me, the most profound experience was in the morgue on, on Wednesday, and I got something that I wasn't expecting at all. Um, Firstly, I was really quite calm, which was uh, um, something that I wasn't quite think thinking would happen, but there you go. And then when it got to whom, for whom the bell tolls, almost towards the end, I had either um, uh, an unconscious projection or a vision of some description 
Um, and uh, there were all my ancestors waiting for me um, in shimmering white outlines. So they were nameless and formless, more or less. And I only recognized, I think, two of them, which were my grandparents, my father's parents. And I got a message which was really quite... Um, gave me pause for thought about not only this life, but also the next life. Um, and has given me some sort of indication of where I might be going in this last working phase of my life. Um, I had major heart surgery on, in September last year, and since that time I haven't worked, and I've been wondering what to do with myself and all the skills I've acquired over the years. And I had a, not a hint, but a shove in the direction that I need to be going, which is um, something that's more spirit-led and more spirit-focused which was, I think, something that I've been resisting for so many years, and now I've been given a real boot up the pants to get going with this. Um, and then on Thursday, and I, I, I'd, it never ceases to amaze me the way these things work, my heart decided it wanted to do something quite manic mm -hmm. and went into overdrive. Um, and uh, I woke up and came into the shrine room, tried to sit in the shrine room, and my heart was just going so fast. So I lay down in my room, which is just happens to be that room there behind Ursula, um, listening to the chanting going on and joining as best I can, breathing, um, calming, my, uh, calming myself down, and the heart was slowing down, and all the rest of it. And then, just before I knew the bell was going to go, I thought, what would happen if I died now? So the teaching that that exercise on Wednesday gave was absolutely profound for me at that precise moment because I could possibly not have had that breath because my heart was just going all over the place. And the same thing happened in hospital when I was being wired for sound um, and being fed drugs to stabilize my heart rate, which was going from about 80 to 157 or something like that. I can't remember now. Um, and uh, what would happen now if this didn't work? So on the one hand, I had this sort of calmness about me, then mental proliferation started. So It was almost as if there were two people there. There's the calm me and the me that was just sort of racing ahead. So, um, But that was a really profound experience, those two days, you know. What led to what, the doctors don't know. Why my heart started doing those sort of somersaults, the medical people don't know. I wondered whether or not it might have been connected with the profundity of the vision and the message that I received about how I should be living my life. Mm -hmm. um, and there was something I wanted to ask Arjun, maybe tomorrow he might be able to answer it. Something about striving too hard, it all goes away, so just occupy the spaciousness. Maybe that was the message I was being given, I don't know. Um, and so um, I'll finish now by just wanting to clear the decks a little bit. Um, and I've been very mindful um, Whenever I come and sit on retreat, and even when I'm helping Joanna manage the retreat, I always learn so much about the Dhamma from not only the talks that I hear, but also from every single person with whom I come into contact. I learn so much Dharma sitting here in this room. It's just amazing. Um, so everybody, thank you for teaching me, as you have done most profoundly. And if there is anybody in any way who's felt hurt or slighted or offended by anything that I've said or done, then... I ask for your forgiveness. Thank you. <coughs> Can I 
first, thank you, sir, for organizing this excellent retreat from which we've benefited a great deal. Um, first, I'd like to mention how heartening it is to see quite a few very young people uh, taking, participating in this retreat. Uh, we say this because my wife and I are now in our 70s, and uh, we've come into meditation quite late in life. So I'd like to congratulate these young people and wish them all success and enduring success in their practice. Um, we have attended three retreats so far, one at home in Sri Lanka, one with Venerable Ajahn Braknavanso in Perth, Australia, and this one. We found this the most relaxed. <laughs> I, I say this because getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning is very reasonable compared to having to get up at 3.30 and be ready for a session at 4 in the morning. Also, the two-and-a-half-hour lull after lunch is, is very comforting. <laughs> also, uh, the innovations of the rehearsal of the, of, of the dying obituaries and writing epitaphs, these are new things to us. We haven't met up with them before, and they're very thought-provoking. I'd also like to thank uh, you for including our yoga sessions. We have found them most rejuvenating, and I would like to thank our teacher very much for her expertise and for her tolerance towards an elderly and inept pupil <laughs> who could barely stand on one leg while she was tying herself up in knots. <laughs> And finally, sir, I'm very happy for the first time I have been able to meet with and listen to a Vietnam veteran. And thank you for sharing your experiences with us. And I'm, also, I'm very happy for you that you've just got one single notch on your Colt .45 or your M16 carbine, as the case may be. Uh, I have a suggestion to make, which I will do appropriately at that time. Thank you. <laughs> I have prepared something in writing, so I've, I'll read it. It's easier. Um, Mozart's Requiem begins with a very somber quiet, give them eternal rest, O Lord. This he is followed by an almost thunderous et lux perpetua luciat eis, which means may the perpetual light shine for them. We played this at my son Daniel's funeral after Danny Boy. Then and thereafter, it has been my wish to, for him to enter that light. I couldn't quite believe it. I just wished it. 
To me, it is the same as the ground luminosity of the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, a light that shines brighter than anything we usually see. This morning, during the guided meditation, it was perhaps the sunlight reaching me, or aided by it, but my long-held grief for Daniel instead of flowing away into the ocean, as Ajahn Amarus suggested, and uh, Daniel himself, too, merged with a, a great brightness which seemed to fill everything. Later on, during walking meditation in the Buddha Grove, by little Benjamin's memorial, the brightness reappeared in every, in, in every sparkling raindrop hanging from every blade of grass. I came here at very short notice, having just come back from abroad visiting family, and with a rather heavy heart, because so far my Buddhist practice had not been fully able to shift the stinging pain of Daniel's sudden violent death almost four years ago. After having struggled with and been tormented by insufferable mental illness all his adult life, I was not really expecting much from this retreat. But I was fully prepared to try and open up so all that we heard, and especially Ajahn Amaro's kind and helpful words, fell on fertile ground. My gratitude is immense to Ajahn Amaru, to Joseph, and to everyone here, to the fourfold Sangha, as it's called, lay and monastic. for its generosity, kindness, and quiet support. I really feel the Buddha's ocean-like compassion here in the silence of the temple and everywhere at Amaravati. And I certainly feel a great deal more at ease now than five days ago. So thank you all very, very much. The Buddha describes practitioners like myself as uninstructed worldlings. So it's an honor to be in the presence of noble, instructed noble disciples. Um, I, I, um, there are many pearls of wisdom that I learned this week, but I, in the, um, because of time I'm only going to share a few of them, which I learned from both of you. Uh, Joseph, um, Sandidiko. Uh, thank you for mentioning that several times. Um, there was a conversation that came up that first started with apple crumb cake and then lead it towards Sri Lankan curry and rice. And then it made sense to me that um, every meal might be my last meal. So I've been, since that conversation, I treat each meal as if it's my last meal. And then I realized 
I treat each conversation now as if it's my last conversation with my mother, with my siblings, with friends. And I treat each meditation as if it's my last meditation. So thank you for that gift. Ajanamaro. Um, this morning's meditation was pivotal in my practice. Uh, you made a statement about uh, 10 seconds of, of uh, an emotion being triggered versus 40 minutes of dukkha, and my preference is 10 seconds. And I came to realize, I, I'd been contemplating this for the past couple of years actually, but uh, last year I came to realize that within those first 10 seconds is our moments of truth. And so if we deny our truths, then we're not practicing with self-compassion with, and with nobility. And so uh, I, I thank you for that um, exquisite meditation this morning. And um, uh, I had been uh, trying to formulate and understand the concept of um, birth and death as it relates emotionally. And it, I had my aha moment after your uh, meditation this morning. It was conceptual, but now it, it resonates in my heart. And so it's, um, I'm very grateful for both of you and your teachings. Hi, I'm Karina. I um, just want to say thank you very much to Ajahn, Amaro, and Joseph. I must say, I'm absolutely blinded. <laughs> There's so much light in this room, it's amazing. And it's, it's filled my heart very deeply. So I shall take it with me, and hopefully I can pass it on. Sorry, I'm all emotional. <laughs> I've just written a small poem, because um, I'm not very good with words, really. <laughs> So, this one is called Going From Nowhere to Now Here. You are, sorry. <laughs> you ask me what I have learned, I say that which I have adjourned. Too many years on the move, always searching to improve. Many a question arises in my head, yet the answers come in silence instead. The longing to let the outside noise go. Only to do, only to be knowing that's my time now to grow. The inner, sorry, the inner reflection lays upon my heart, knows now that is a brand new start. Never holding on to what ifs or regrets, walking through the door to clear all karmic debts. So as I go back to the outside world, holding on to the words of each given pearl. The meaning of silence is becoming so clear, with every breath I take so precious and dear. So the final goodbyes will be sad, as wonderful week has been had. Death and dying are a hard subject to tackle, for this, I know, has removed that last shackle. Thank you. <laughs> um, 
first of all. Thank you, Ajahn Amaro and Joseph. Thank you very much. I feel totally blessed <laughs> with this retreat. I'm so blessed being with you, Ajahn Amaro and Joseph, and uh, with everybody here. And uh, we, we've been talking about death, and uh, I've been thinking about death. And uh, what I would like to share uh, with you here is uh, about uh, a death of a friend from Chithurst who died uh, last year. And uh, probably I could uh, call his name, real name. I'm sure he wouldn't mind. His name is his name is David. And he was probably of the people who goes to Chithurst know about David. He was a Quite, once you saw him, you would never forget. He was very big built, strong looking, always ultra, and uh, some people a bit frightened of him. But he was always keep go, he kept going back to the monastery, always going to the Dhamma talk. But when he was at the lay people's like, um, day, lay, lay people's like a community day, he sometimes talk about very dark, dark things. So people are a bit afraid of him. And um, I was quite a good friend of him. And I saw him uh, about this time of last year. And uh, I saw him. He lost so much weight. And I, I saw him and said, Hi, David, what happened to you? And he said to me, I'm dying. I said, no, you're not. No, I am dying. I couldn't believe it. And I just uh, hugged him. And from that day, we started exchanging a text message every morning. And I just, we just, I wanted to give him uh, support. And uh, my father died uh, about 15 years ago. I didn't, he was uh, the first person who I lost. Uh, who I loved and I got really panicked and I couldn't see him off well I couldn't say goodbye very well so with David I really wanted to see him off he was dying of cancer he was losing and uh, so I was, our conversation was have you had to eat, eat anything a small conversation but we carried on this conversation by text message about three months, and he, we, Ajahn Tima and I visited him in Ipswich. He was at Ipswich Hospice, and we saw him, and Ajahn Tima asked him, what could we do for him? And he said, take me back, he said, take him back to the monastery. So Ajahn Tima talked to one of our good friends, Bridget, she works for um, Chichester Hospice as a trustee and volunteer. So we con he contacted him if there is any space for him to stay. By that time, already David was almost dying, but he t he um, left hospice and drove <laughs> to the monastery Chithurst from Ipswich, and then he. He was staying at a friend's house in the New Forest. 
and he had a very good close relationship with uh, Ajahn Tita Dhamma and uh, Ajahn Tita Dhamma was uh, his spiritual teacher and help, hope for him. And uh, Bridget was really compassionate. She took him to her house and looked after him for a few days until she managed to put him into a um, found a bed for him at uh, um, Chichester Hospice. And uh, Bridget told me later on, I felt a little bit bad to Bridget because Bridget didn't know David, but Bridget didn't mind. And uh, she told me David was thankful, always thankful all the time, just kept repeating, thank you, thank you, thank you, all the time. And um, then about five days later, I still didn't see David was in when he moved to a Chichester hospice. And the preacher sent me a text message saying he may not make it till tomorrow morning. <coughs> I felt really bad I didn't see him. And um, and that night I went to bed, I woke up, I texted Bridget. It was a bit early in the morning. She didn't answer my text because it was five o'clock in the morning. And and in that morning, she texted me back about nine o'clock. She said, David's still alive. I was reading a, his a text on a train, and a, a friend was sitting next to me. She said, you must go. You must go and see him. I said, I have to go to work. Forget about work. Go to see him. <laughs> so I went to work anyway. I told my <laughs> boss. <laughs> I told my boss, yes, my friend is dying. May I leave me? May I go? And they all said, because I so supportive. At work, it's an accounting company. They don't talk about these things. <laughs> Death or <laughs> friends or spirit. Or <laughs> but they were so, just go. So I called my my son, because I didn't know where the hospice was. And I said to my son to print out my Google Map, because my car was so old, 20 years old, it didn't, ha didn't have a sat nav. And, <laughs> and my son said, oh, he said he would, uh, he would take me. Your car, you might break down. I take you. I, no, don't worry. I don't have anything, nothing, no plan this afternoon. I'm free. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so he took me to Ch Chichester Hospice. And uh, he, my son, said, don't worry about me. I take your dog for a walk, two hours, couple hours, just stay with your friend. So I went to see David. And uh, David was unconscious, completely unconscious. And uh, but I went to David, closely to David. I said, David. Kazuko is here, and he opened his eyes, and he looked at me. He opened his eyes, and I said, oh, yes, he's listening to me. So I took my book of uh, Bodhisattvas, That Way of Life, uh, written by the um, Shantideva, um, yes. <laughs> And uh, I read my summer stanzas for him for about one hour or so. And uh, Bridget came. So when Bridget came in that afternoon, 
I said to David, David, Bridget and Kazuo are here. And he opened his eyes again. And we stayed there for, for a while, and Bridget played chanting on CD. And it was time to leave. I didn't know what to say to David, because I knew I was not going to see him again. And uh, I asked Bridget, because she works for the hospice, probably she knew what's the best way of saying goodbye. And she said to me, say goodnight. So I said to him, goodnight, David. And uh, we both held, Dave Bridget and I held David's hand, touched the forehead, and, and we left. And the uh, next day, he died. And uh, his death, the, the experience I had uh, uh, towards his death was beautiful. He was becoming, becoming more beautiful. The way he looked at things, his eyes was becoming like more transparent. And the way he said things were really beautiful. And his death was, was just uh, for me, was how to send people off. It's in a calm way. So I was very blessed with his death. And uh, I feel David is with me here. And I'm sure he would be most happy to be sitting in this retreat if he were alive. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, what a lovely story to try to follow. Um, is it um, this end or that end? <laughs> Where are we? That end? Or this end? Yeah. Thank you, um, Hello, this is Gregor here. and. Um, I suppose, as most of you know, I'm the one that's been doing some of that, some of that tolling this, um, this week. And the very first thing I must ask is your forgiveness. Uh, at home, I, I suppose I have the privilege, I've arranged it that way, that I, I wake up to very soft classical music, which gradually gets louder. It's a rather lovely, gentle way into each day, I find, and helps me take that first breath. Um, so I do apologize if at times the... Um, the necessity to ring loudly to help people awaken themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Your forgiveness is forgiven if necessary. Thank you. Um, I tend to forget what to say halfway through, so I jot down a few notes. I'm, I'm aware that the greatest blessings that one can get derive from various sources, and one is to share the Dharma with people. And um, about 24 years down the road of trying to catch up with the Buddha, and 14 years trying to do it here at Amravati, the, the importance, the impact was very evident to my friends, and many of them show an interest. And one, my dear friend Dave, all the way down the end, though, spoke so eloquently earlier, um, was kind enough to um, seek some comments when he was searching to expand his spiritual path, and so he found his way to Amravati. And it's, it's my delight that he's sharing with us that it's something of a life-changing experience for him, which I, of course, resonate with myself. I'm sure many of us can um, relate to that, too. Um, how has my life been changed on this particular week? After you know, 14 years and many retreats, um, it's about the same, uh, substantially. Um, hard to quantify it. Huge experiences, wonderful teachings. 
and always the company of so many fellow retreatants, like Dave is suggesting, we all learn from each other so beautifully here. Ah, uh, what else? The bell, the bell. I suppose it's back to mothers, I'm afraid. We can't quite finish without addressing mum again. Um, uh, gratitude in showing me the way forward. Um, I think it was no, no um, coincidence that the gentleman sitting just in front of me here, I met right at the beginning of the retreat and shared with me the fact that um, he spends a considerable amount of time looking after his mum. And we've had a rearrangement of seating here at the end of the retreat. And again, coincidentally, he's sitting right in front of me once again. Joseph, I'm indebted to your stories about how you cared for your teacher, Ajahn Shah. And Ajahn Amaro, the way you spoke to me on the same subject, I, I, just, I just felt myself crying inwardly. And shortly after that, which was always a resonance of something very powerful being received and held in heart. And then shortly after that, um, I think we bumped into each other in the corridor, didn't we, Sister Thodipala? He said, come and sit in the shrine room with me. She sort of almost dragged me <laughs> well, not quite. We sat together, and um, through much tears and listening, the, the sort of confirmation, the, uh, the clarity, the... Um, I would, wouldn't you know, dream of saying being told what to do, of course not, but such strong direction that, um, just to go off on a tangent very briefly before I pass the microphone on, I, I, f I find myself deeply grateful that I combine the um, treading the Buddhist path with um, treading a, a, a long sort of counseling and psychotherapeutic path. I think by bringing Buddhism and psychotherapy together, it has the most profoundly healing effects on self and therefore the potential to offer that to others. And what I seem to be being called to do is not getting trapped in an either-or situation, is it everything to the person you're looking after to the exclusion of all other aspects, but a shift. And friends sometimes say, you know, what do you do after you've been in the same occupation for 23 years and you're beginning to wonder, yeah, great privilege, but what's been called upon next? And it seems that's starting to become a bit clearer for me, what perhaps needs to be perhaps just temporarily let go of, or the emphasis needs to shift a bit. But it sounds like... I used to feel it was going to be altruistic, but Sister Bodhipada reminded me it is the greatest of blessings that one will find down the road. So that's a tricky one, isn't it? How am I going to be with all of that? So I think that's about it. Um, I'm leaving this retreat, as I so often do retreats at um, Amarati, with, with great joy, huge amount of humility, um, and a real sense of the length of the path, the what the one treads, and just to, to carry on striving on. So thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to speak with you and listening to me. Thank you.
Richard. Richard. Go ahead. I just wanted to share with you um, some uh, an experience that I had some years ago that was triggered in my mind by the very last thing we were considering before we broke for tea. And that is the assumptions that we make about the state of consciousness of the dead and the dying. And about seven years ago, I was um, attending with my partner, June, the death of her mother. And um, she's effectively my mother-in-law and I'm the son-in-law. And I, did, I had a, not an, a typical relationship with her in that I was very fond of her, got on very well with her, and was um, part of her care and support team in the last years of her life. So we had a close connection. I was very fond of her. And about a week before she died, we received the information from the doctors that she was on her way out. And June and I entered into a, a vigil, um, sitting in the Royal Free Hospital in Hampstead, um, in one of these four-bed units, where they and she wasn't she didn't have a private room, and in Hampstead, one of the things I should tell you is the parking attendants make have no mercy on you if you're attending the death dead and dying or the hospital. <clears throat> so I was very careful to set my watch to 24-hour time so that I knew when I scratched off the little uh, squares on the parking vouchers, I would get it exactly right and I wouldn't get confused by a, a clock that was on 12-hour time. And so we're approaching um, her death and we're in this vigil. And she was a lovely woman, but earlier in her life, in 1946, she had given birth to one of June's brothers on the same day as an older child, one of June's brothers, died. So it was a very poignant, tragic moment in the family life that had long-term repercussions, as all the therapists amongst you will know, on the family dynamic. It was, in fact, probably the most, um, the biggest moment of her life when that happened. So we're attending her bedside, and she's breathing, struggling with her breath, it's getting weaker, it's coming back again, it's getting sort of like fluttering, and eventually, this is after about a week of vigil, midway through the evening, it gets fainter and fainter and fainter. The palliative care team have long since departed, leaving me with a little sponge to moisten her lips. And eventually, eventually, the breath fades out. She's gone. June and I standing there, holding her hand. Tears streaming down our face, faces. And June turns to me and she says, what time do you have on your watch? Presumably so she could tell her brother in America. I looked at my watch and it was 1946. Now, that for me was no coincidence. 
I don't know what it was, I'm no numerologist, but I have a sense that something about her death was, and her timing, even though she was on a morphine drip, well out of it, apparently completely oblivious to our presence, apparently, something was being said by the timing of her death, and I don't know any more about it than that. But I just thought I'd share that with you as a reflection on these assumptions we make about how people are out of it or not conscious or their level of awareness. One further reflection on that story was that as soon as that had happened, I had a very great sense of not that she had gone, but simply, as it were, there was an opening. This was in a busy ward. There was a screen around the bed. There's lots of the noises of the ward. There was a patient in the corner calling nurse, nurse, and there's lots of the bustle of visiting time. And she was just dying in the corner with life going on around her. But I had a very great sense of just something opening. And later when I read the Tibetan Book of the Dead and they talk about bardos as openings, it seemed to make so much sense that actually there's just a very thin veil between the bodily form and what's beyond. Death and dying. I was immediately attracted to come in. Um, uh, I think when my mother was two months pregnant with me, she tried to abort me. And I've always, in my throughout my whole life, always been very attracted to dying. Probably be perhaps because I had this early experience of fighting for my life in the womb. So anything to do with death and dying, I, I'm always making friends with people that are dying or. Um, it just—it's a bit like, um, a bit like honey for a bee or something. I'm always very. So one of the reasons I came was for that. Another was because um, I haven't ever been on a retreat with you, Ajahn Amaro, before, and um, I have very close con close connection with Blanco Tomato, and I wanted to see. I wanted to experience your teaching, and I and I wanted and I just wanted to take this opportunity of, of um, thanking you so much for taking on the abbotship of and the and the major leadership in the Sangha, so I just want to thank you very much for that. I'm really grateful that the Sangha's in such a good home. So thank you. And there are a few, um, something that you said about Declan's death was very useful for me because I was 40 when Declan died and I was at the family camp and it was the first time I'd uh, seen the dead body of a human being. Um, uh, 
and um, and it was a very profound experience. And that was the year when I asked Glencore for my the Buddhist name <laughs> as well. It's that nice thing too. And I it, I was grateful to hear a little bit more about what happens when he dies. It was so moving. So thank you for that. And um, and Joseph, I I I was um. I was very involved with the anti-Vietnam War movement and it's coming up on the other side. <laughs> um, and um, I'm very grateful to hear about your experiences. Thank you for sharing them so honestly. And um, in the Buddhist group in, in Weymouth, we, we have quite a few uh, people that are ex-service people. And, um, and uh, I'm just beginning to understand a little bit more about about experiences and, and I was very grateful to hear um, and um, and I just and I want to say very briefly that about a month uh, um, uh, in the same week my one son had a baby and then the other son cancelled the wedding it was like within a few days of each other and I thought oh Someone sending me something to test my equanimity. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's a really great and something very bit sad happening. And I just wanted to mention that my I went to the monastery in Hartridge, which is my local monastery. Um, and uh, and uh, and when I came back, there was a message from my ex-husband on the phone, and he hadn't. Uh, we don't. We, there's not much connection between us. He he left 16 years ago. It was quite a long time. And he wanted to talk to me. He was obviously very upset to hear about this, the marriage being cancelled. Um, but he didn't put the phone down. I wasn't in. He left a message on the phone. And then he didn't put the phone down properly. And, uh, and I, I heard him saying to his wife some quite unpleasant things about me. after Because uh, uh, I wasn't there. And, and he... He, he didn't know that he hadn't put the phone down, <laughs> and, I was, and it was quite and it was quite upsetting, really. It was quite upsetting, although it sounds funny. Wasn't that funny? Um, and um, I thought, oh, after sixteen years, there's still a lot of I don't know. There's a lot of still kind of. It felt like dumping blame and stuff on me. Um, he was the one who decided to end the marriage. And, um, but always blamed it on me, and I. But I, I was, whilst I was um, uh, practicing dying in the temple, it occurred to me that um, if he still felt that angry with me, you know, perhaps there were things that I did and said in the marriage that um, that offended him and really upset and hurt him, and perhaps I need to apologise for those. Um, so. Um, I've written a card to say that I'm on this retreat, and um, if you know, if there's any way that I um, have offended him or hurt, or hurt, hurt him, you know, by um, any by actions and body, speech, or mind during those during the marriage, um, I would like to say sorry and I apologise because I thought after all those years and he's still angry and upset and. Uh, and he had a heart attack the other year, and I, I don't really like him to still die being angry and annoyed with me. And there were probably things that I did that was I said that was unskillful, even though I might not be able to think of what they were. So, 
I spend that card and then that's ended. So thank you very much for that. And by the way, the baby was born on Ajahn Jatindra's 50th birthday. So I thought that was quite a My sister's well. birthday as well. Oh, 22nd. May 22nd. Um, I did write a little tiny epitaph, and it was something like... Um, 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 oh, I came, I saw, I, I tried my best. Um, I did my best, and then I died like all the rest. <laughs> That's better than Spike Milligan. <laughs> say once again thank you very much the beautiful way you both work together and teach the Dhamma and I really appreciate it from the bottom of my heart very blessed I couldn't say thanks a hundred times and it would not be enough and actually I wasn't going to come it was that um, I received an email that I did apply but it was full and a place became available and I kind of thought okay let's organize this how can I take the care for my daughter? And actually, kind of through naturally, everyone came forward, <laughs> really willing to to um, invite Isabel for days to play and have her, and so on and forward. And so I thought, okay, it's a good opportunity to come. And so I'm really glad to be here and be able to um, be with everyone. And thank you, everyone, <coughs> for um, being here and the gifts that you all have brought have been um, quite helpful for me and I really appreciate that and the way you both held the life mm -hmm. meant that personally myself was able to hold it as well <laughs> in a dignifying way so I want to thank you for that too and, and I'll put two things together <laughs> like a model <laughs> <coughs> The death place. Knowing, <coughs> um, knowing my own heart, body, and mind, breathing in, breathing out, still and composed, holding the light in a dignifying way, with a, please, with a blissful heart, filled with gratitude and appreciative joy. Divine pure love is unconditional. Love and wisdom flow naturally, like a river. The only reality is knowing love and not knowing love discerning with wisdom between lack and ignorance, opening our hearts on conditional giving with virtue, good intentions. This unconditional giving brings happiness to oneself and others. Virtue is the root for it to be pure, as a mother gives to her child with an abundant heart, shining the light forth with consciousness. When defilements come up, one can see the impermanence, wisdom discerns between the light and the darkness, going deep inside, as we know. It is okay to make mistakes and not to be perfect. After all, it is just a mistake. We can retake it again. Coming from a good heart, kindness, forgiveness, unconditional, without expectations of the outcome, grace comes in and says hello, we're open to it. <laughs> 
meeting a widow tossed spot out in delight, illustrating place. Understanding challenges bring gifts, valuable insights with great compassion towards ourselves and others. It is a powerful blessing in our lives. As human beings, we all bring different gifts which combine together are a benefit to humankind. Every individual plays their own tune and bring their individuality forth. And I just finished with a little quote of Steiner that I really like. Trust in the ever-present help of the spiritual world. Truly nothing else will do if our courage is not to let us down. Let's discipline the way and let's seek the awakening every morning and every evening. Good of Steiner. didn't particularly want to speak this evening, but I found the microphone sitting right in front of me, <laughs> <coughs> and there was a gap, so I took that as an invitation. <coughs> Excuse the voice, it's a bit hoarse from lack of use except for chanting. <coughs> I think the one thing I'd like to start with and share is this evening, thinking about tonight, wondering if it feel right to speak or not. My relationship to Joseph came to heart. We've had many years together in the robes, many experiences, many challenges together. And I was kind of wondering how this retreat would be for him. But I'm glad to say that what came were tears, tears of joy to have experienced this opportunity of not just teaching, but himself. I really appreciate the beauty with which he gives himself. And just doing that, I feel, might be the beginning of a lovely teaching career. Ajahn, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just that much, thank you. That's been a good retreat <coughs> in this evening, um, especially in the beginning and throughout. Just the sharing of everybody has, has really expressed the abundance of blessings that have come forth in this place combined retreat of what came before the um, dying mindfully, the aging mindfully. Together with this both, there's been a lot of wonderful happenings and teachings and, and you feel how much everyone's benefited from it, including myself, of course. And um, thank you for making it happen, both of you and everybody. <coughs> Thank you so much, Ajahn. Santachito. No one but he and I knows the depth of our relationship and how far we go back. So many experiences 
yet there's a, a timeless kind of connection and love and caring that we share because we have as different as we are and have always been and probably always will be we always could meet at a at a heart level and and uh, I always look to to Ajahn Santa to to tell it to me like it is he was very good at that and that's why I was always afraid to talk to him (laughs) so you might appreciate that as he began to speak that I had a little trepidation <laughs> and that he hadn't spoke pretty much most of the retreat. I wasn't quite sure. <laughs> but what he said is, is truly, my brother, touch me deeply. Thank you. Um, it's 20 years in monastic life. I, uh, is, there's so much to share, as you can imagine, and kind of distilling that and bringing it into the context of this. And then 21 years of post-monastic retreat. So now I've been a, a non-monk longer than I was a monk. Uh, and, uh, and I guess I was longer as a non-monk before I went there, and at, at age 23. But uh, when I started to settle more and get kind of a little more grounded in myself in Massachusetts, I had always kind of tried some different instruments and had been very um, uh, looking for something. And I wanted something simple, easy, that I didn't, that wasn't too difficult to learn, and, but would kind of be an extension uh, of the chanting, of the expression of our devotion in, uh, in Buddhism. But that was maybe just a little bit sexier than our chanting. <laughs> Because when you're just keeping the five precepts, you can do things a little sexier. <laughs> and I came across this, not this particular instrument, but one like it, uh, probably about eight to ten years ago, somewhere in that range. And this is a, a contemporary uh, indigenous American. I like the word indigenous because I think, I believe I'm a Native American and that I was born in the country, but I'm not indigenous to the country. So to all the wonderful peoples uh, of that country, the native peoples as we call them, but the indigenous people uh, have given us this wonderful instrument. There's so many cultures, and those of you who sit here, uh, there's wind instruments probably in every culture uh, imaginable, and they take on many shapes and many forms. But the native American flute spoke, spoke to me quite deeply. So when I first started uh, to uh, try to learn this instrument, uh, I was very humbled, but it was it's kind of like the Dhamma in many ways. It's it has a beautiful sound in it, but one has to kind of find that beautiful sound. And so it's the coming together of these elements uh, from the tree or trees that this was a, a part of. And uh, they come in many shapes, many sizes, and uh, the tunings. And so each one has its own voice, and if I was to, we had a whole row of of people that could play this instrument, each one would pick it up, and it would have a little different sound. And uh, this this, uh, particular uh, song I'm going to play is kind of one of my favorites, it's kind of become my my favorite, uh, kind of my trademark song. And I played it uh, two years ago on a retreat with uh, Ajahn uh, Suchito and I uh, uh, Miranandi at the end when we had a blessing. And the flute that I used was quite different than this, and I wished I could have that one because it's kind of my favorite. But uh, traveling, we had to go light, so I had to bring one of my smaller flutes. 
So what I want to play is called the Cherokee Welcoming Song. And I don't know how you, many of you are familiar with um, the uh, when uh, the monks and nuns do the, ch- the blessing chanting, they do what they call uh, the invitation to the, the dewas or the kind of heavenly beings. But the invitation is, is kind of, it's above, below, it's very extensive and expansive. So kind of all things, all beings that have consciousness that can hear the sound of this, this voice, please come forward to bear witness uh, to these blessings, to this chanting that we are about to, to undertake. You know, we welcome you, we invite you. So the Cherokee welcoming song is kind of like that. I imagine uh, it was uh, perhaps designed for when the, the various nations would come together and for gatherings and whatever the gathering might be in, in peaceful and, and harmonious ways and kind of sitting around a campfire and somebody playing the flute saying, welcome my sisters, welcome my brothers, welcome my relatives, of, and this invitation. So traditionally, the, the this kind of verse, as it were, is played four times, like for the four seasons, the stages of life, the four directions, and, and uh, it's not really important how many times. So I thought thrice would be appropriate for a Buddhist retreat and our kind of triple gem and all the things that we do uh, in threes. So I would like to, uh, to share this with you this evening and in the heart and in the spirit of the welcoming, to welcoming all of the, the things that we've been not only doing on this retreat, but welcoming and opening our hearts and our, our lives to uh, allow all that which needs to come forward for you and I to waken up, to learn from, to benefit and to grow and to ultimately be free, to uh, not to be afraid of any of it, to, to welcome it, to embrace it, to allow it to manifest and come forth.
played it, I was a bit worried you were going to smoke it afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> you, haven't, you haven't smelled the bowl part here. <laughs> Because this is a was a Mike fully aging retreat and and a death and dying retreat, and I'm getting old. I wondered if we could have a five minute break. <laughs> <laughs> How does everyone feel about that? Sure. <laughs> I feel I need a stretch and around. I don't know about other people. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be back in a minute. <laughs> Anybody else who'd like to stretch your legs and have a breather? Keep Rosie better. company. <laughs> My Ajahn told me that Bhikkhu is not allowed to touch musical instruments. <laughs> well, I'm going to hide it. <laughs> Actually, I'll leave it others, others that may like to. It's beautifully made, yeah. I think people would like to see it. Beautifully made. Yeah, it's a very, very nice thing. I was in the <laughs> you weren't sure how if your meditation had gone to another level, right?
your name. So green. It's a very interesting photograph because you notice my finger is not actually on the shutter. So before we begin part two, um, perhaps some of you might have uh, been curious as to who this George Sharp fellow was that uh, we were dedicating the chanting to. This uh, gentleman is in the back corner here, sitting by the door, um, <laughs> otherwise known as Gorgeous George or George the Forge, former <laughs> other nicknames. Uh, he has been a, a stalwart uh, supporter of the Sangha for, for many decades. He was the one who invited uh, Lumpur Sumato and Lumpur Cha to come to England the first time. Um, and uh, back in the 1970s, he um, sort of held the, held the wheel of the, the ship of the English Sangha Trust and helped the, this community to be established in this country. And uh, it's, no small th uh, it's no exaggeration to say that uh, without George's initiative and singleness of purpose and his uh, acute sense of, of uh, 
Dhamma and how it uh, is uh, how it is practiced that uh, Amaravati would not be here, Ajahn Sameda would not be in this country, and so uh, he didn't know that we were going to speak about him this evening, <laughs> but I felt uh, he's a um, been a, a very uh, key player, uh, a, a, a hugely important catalyst for the community. Um, especially during those early years when there was all sorts of forces pulling in various different directions. George held the wheel with uh, extraordinary uh, commitment and rigor and, uh, and patience. So, <laughs> Appropriate brutality at <laughs> certain moments. <laughs> but, uh, sometimes that's, uh, that's what's required yeah, to hold the ship on course. So... Um, so I'm very glad that George has been able to join us for a few days and uh, to be uh, uh, with us uh, yesterday evening and this evening also. is uh, to uh, Venerable Achan Amero and uh, would, you mi- would, you, would you mind uh, uh, sharing your uh, meditation experience with uh, this uh, probe? Have you been doing that for the last week? <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I mean your, uh, maybe uh, achievement or maybe uh, uh, This evening learn. is for all of you. <laughs> So the short answer is no.
and uh, how long do they live? Uh, if we stop drinking uh, water or any liquid, and then maybe a week, let's see, let's see. Um, so we need water to be able to live, uh, which is a water element. And then uh, we need food. Um, we would probably live about 40 days without food, which is earth element. So the food is solid and comes from the, the, the mother earth, um, like rice or potatoes. And then how long would we live if uh, we don't keep warm? Um, I don't know, but surely I know that we would eventually get ill and, and die, uh, because um, we need to keep warm and we need sun, even uh, Vitalians who live on the own food uh, where they cook it. Um, they need to have something warm, at least warm tea a day. Um, so yeah, so it's a disease in some way. Uh, how, how interesting is that? Um, and um, obviously, uh, we keep doing that and eventually die. But when we die, we again dissolve to the four elements. why I came on this retreat and why is why this theme uh, death and dying and uh, mindful aging was appealing to me was that in the Western society uh, we don't talk about it and uh, I don't know why because it's for me it's so important to talk about it and to know more about it in the sense of that this is the only fact only only fact that we are sure of that we are going to die. So it's I know it's like people get afraid of that because they don't know what's going to happen after that, but I feel that as much as we are um, prepared as as much as we know and uh, can share about the death and the dying think that we can be more present with that when it comes and when it happens. Can I be next? Of course. <laughs> 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 I'm just sitting here thinking that you were saying earlier about the greatest desire is just before you get something. And I think the greatest fear for me is just before I speak to all of you. My heart was racing then. Um, yes, I've got a few things to say, as usual. Um, the chanting seems louder this time than ever before. And I don't know why, because I don't think my hearing's getting any better. <laughs> But I think it's because there's so many experienced people here so, who are used to chanting, and it's been wonderful to join in with it. Um, 
and welcome George. I've heard your name many, many times over the years I've come here and Law Force mentioned you many times and I've never seen you before. <laughs> And I didn't know if you were still alive. <laughs> 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 <So> welcome. <laughs> and um, it's been lovely to meet you, Joseph and Catherine, and for you to fill in the gaps for me about Arch and Charles last year's. So that was really good for me. Um, I wanted to share a few things. Um, I went on a walk today and I was thinking about my mother and she wasn't very good at dying. Um, <laughs> I brought her home from hospital and I was with her, uh, a few, nursed her for a few days before she died and she was in complete denial about it. And um, she'd had two men as her partners over the years and she'd been very clever. She'd lived in the house with both of them. Um, one of them unknown to the other. One was a lodger and the other one was her husband. <laughs> and um, they were both in the house as she was dying. And um, I just heard this story about um, two, two men um, who went to a woman's funeral. They were both her partners and they went to, both went to her funeral it was an old historical story and I sat on her bed the day that she died and she was conscious and I told her this story because it was like, well, maybe she'd realise <laughs> through the story that she was actually going to die. And um, she did die peacefully that night and both the men, her husband and the lodger, both came to the funeral. Um, and it made me think that I'd like to give you a present tonight, and I wasn't sure what to do, and I thought I'd like to tell you a story. So are you all sitting comfortably? <laughs> <laughs> That's why we had to have the break. Because <laughs> 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 you might have said no. <laughs> and then I'll begin. <clears throat> it's come to me over this retreat, this story. Um, Oh, once upon a time, a long time ago, in a land far away, there were two brothers. The older brother was a bit mean, and he'd had a very severe father, and he was very sort of tight and critical, and he was a magistrate in the town. And people respected him, but they also feared him. And the, he lived alone. And the younger brother had inherited the family estate, was handsome, everybody loved him, and he had the woman of his dreams, which the older brother also wished he'd had as well. So they lived in this town, and one day the younger brother felt he must go on a pilgrimage um, because he felt that life had been very good to him and he'd never had any really major challenges. Everything had come to him on a plate. He must have had very good karma. And, and he told everyone he was going off for a few weeks. And when he left, the older brother thought he might have a chance. So he went to visit the woman. But she bolted the door and wouldn't see him. And he came with flowers and with sweet breads and 
sweet cakes and she would still not see him. And the weeks went by and one day it was the eve of a full moon and he thought, well, maybe now, by now he's, she's missing her, her, my, her husband, my brother, and maybe I've got a chance. So he took a flagon of wine and he went and knocked on the door and she still wouldn't answer the door and he got quite annoyed and he looked through the window and she was there on her own doing some embroidery and he went home and he drank half the flagon of wine and he thought this isn't fair my brother's had everything and, and I have nothing and people don't like me and um, I, he felt very angry and bitter so he um, the next morning when he drank half of the wine and he was in a very bad mood with a terrible headache he declared, as he was the village magistrate, he declared to everybody that she got a lover, that he'd seen him through the window. He couldn't see who he was, but there definitely was a man with her. And the villagers were very angry. They didn't like the woman because she was very wealthy and very beautiful and they were jealous of her. So in that country, they decided to stone her to death. And that's what they thought they did. Late that afternoon, they took her into the village square and they thought they stoned her to death. And they left her under a pile of stones and everybody went back home. And the brother felt very satisfied. And that night, um, a bone setter was travelling through the village with his horse and cart. It was a full moon and he could see where to go and he stopped in the village square because his, um, his horse was tired and they needed a drink and a rest. And there in the village square, he heard this funny noise, like an animal whimpering. And he went to see what it was and realized that it came from under the pile of stones. And he pulled the stones away and saw the woman lying there like a rag doll all limp and floppy with broken bones, but she was still alive. So he picked her up and put her gent very gently in the cart and looked around and there was nobody about. But he felt just to be on the safe side, he'd have to cover her up with hay in case anyone saw. And then off he went into the night. Then he wanted to go quickly, but he couldn't go too fast because else she would maybe die and he couldn't go too slow because it was important he got her back to his house. When he got her home, he and his assistant spent many hours setting her bones, putting splints on her arms and her legs and um, looking after her. And then I want to go back now to the village because um, the, the husband came back and he was devastated that his wife had died, as he thought, and even more puzzled that the body had disappeared and nobody knew where it was. And there was a sort of darkness came over the town because the wives were suspecting, who was it? Who was it who was the lover? And they were suspecting their husbands. And neighbor was suspecting neighbor. And the magistrate, who started off feeling very pleased with himself, 
was then having to account to his brother and saying, yes, there definitely was somebody there. And then he started not to be able to sleep very well. And um, he began to feel ill. And then he began to get boils all over <coughs> his body. And he was in a lot of pain. And he began to get very ill and he couldn't do his job anymore. Meanwhile, back at the bone setter's house, the woman was slowly getting better, very, very slowly. And her wounds healed. They explained to everybody that she was a beggar woman who had been run over by his cart. And they burnt her rich clothes and hid her jewellery in case anybody found out what had happened because the bone setter knew that if she was discovered, she might be stoned again. He didn't know her story. And he waited and waited, and one day when she was better, she told him what had happened and that she was innocent. And she'd done nothing, nothing wrong. And the strange thing was that as she got better, the bone setter was a healer, and as her bones healed, the healing energy from his hands went into hers. And she also found that she had healing powers. And although after some months she walked with a limp and she had scars on her face, she was becoming a very good healer. And people would bring their children, their babies, and anyone who was ill to come and see her. And very often she could heal them and her reputation spread far and wide. And then meanwhile, the magistrate is getting ill, more ill and more ill, and the brother went to him. And he said, I've heard that there's a healer very many miles away who could perhaps help you, and I want to take you to, to her. And he was very reluctant to go, but in, because he was so in so much pain if he moved. But the brother got a cart, and he put him in the cart, and he didn't go too fast, and he didn't go too slow. And eventually they got to the healer's house. Now, because of what had happened to her, the bone setter said she must wear a veil. If she ever had anyone come who wasn't from the local village, she must wear the veil in case her identity was discovered. So there she was sitting in her room and to her astonishment, her husband came in with, with the older brother. And there he was laying on the floor with all the boils and the brother implored, the, her husband implored her, please can you help this man, he's my brother, he's, he's my only relative now. Can you help him? And she said in a very different voice, I'm not sure if I can. And she got up and walked round the man and sat down again. And the man on the floor felt very, very uncomfortable and didn't know quite why and began shaking. And she said, yes, I think I can help him, but he has a secret. He holds a secret. And if he doesn't tell the secret, he will never get better. And then she sat quietly to wait and see what would happen. And the brother rushed 
the younger brother, her husband, rushed over to the older brother and said, please, please tell the secret because I love you and I don't want to lose you and I would forgive you anything. He said, when I went on my pilgrimage, I vowed because I'd had such a happy life that I would forgive anybody anything. Please, please say. Well, the older brother felt very uncomfortable and was shaking and he thought, well, maybe if I was a bit stronger, I could kill my brother because if everybody found out what I've done, then I'll be killed too. And he began to, to really wail and not know what to do. And again, the, the husband said to the woman, I love him and I've, I've lost my wife. A terrible thing happened with my wife and I've forgiven the man who who must have killed, uh, uh, not have killed her, killed, forgiven the man who was her lover, and now I don't want to lose my brother. Please, please, she implore, implored the brother. So eventually the older brother admitted what he'd done. He said, I was jealous of Rebecca. I call her Rebecca. And um, I was jealous and I told everybody a lie. And then and then they stoned her to death. And so they hugged each other and they were sobbed and they sobbed and the husband was heartbroken but he forgave his brother. And then when the wailing and the sobbing was over, he said to her, but what about her body? What did you do? What <coughs> happened with her body then? <coughs> and... Um, he said, I don't know. We never knew what happened to the body. And then Rebecca said, well, the bone setter came past and he brought her to this house and she was healed and she is now living. She is now well. And the husband said, please, please, let me see her. Let me see her. And so then Rebecca took her veil off and said, I am she. And she said, as you have forgiven your brother, I will forgive him as well. And then they embraced and they were passionate and crying and wailing as well. And a servant watching from the wings, who shouldn't have been there, noticed that the, the hugging and the wailing seemed to be the same, even though one was out of terrible sorrow and the other was out of terrible joy, amazing joy. And the servant ran off to spread the news. And it was evening. And the, the bone setter suggested they stayed the night, which they did. And then the husband obviously wanted his wife back home. And the three of them returned home the next day with the older brother, although feeling still very, very terrible, felt a little bit better than he'd done before. And they got back to the village and there was a great big crowd of people waiting, a mob, and they were all shouting and they were angry with the magistrate because he'd been quite severe to some of them and they didn't forget. And they were saying, let's do, let's do something to him, Let, let's punish him. And Rebecca said, no, you were too quick to judge me. And now don't you think he's suffered enough, he's lost his job, he's nearly dying and I will take care of him 
and they took him back to their farm and they nursed him till he was back to health. But when he was better, he felt terrible because every time he looked at his brother, he could see how much older he'd got from the strain of all this. And when he looked at Rebecca, he could see that she walked with a limp and she had scars and he felt he couldn't stay any longer. So he decided he would have to leave. Nobody wanted him in the town, everyone shunned him. So he left the farm and he decided to go and work for the bone setter for the rest of his days. And that's the end of my story. <laughs> There's one more thing. <laughs> my epitaph. Um, I had, my mother never wanted me to be very excited. And she'd, if, she, if I did cry, she used to make such a fuss that I couldn't bear it. And after I heard Achin Cha's story, I decided for my epitaph I'd like to have this song which I heard at another Buddhist camp actually, sung by some Negroes, uh, Negro people. And it's, when I, when I rise, let me rise like a bird on the wing. And when I fall, let me fall like a leaf from a tree. And when I die, let me die like a day fades away. Thank you, everybody. I um, thank you, Ajahn and Joseph, for all the teachings. Um, and uh, I shared with, with the Sati that sort of I put my name down because as soon as I saw your name <laughs> for the retreat, without not knowing that you foresee uh, mindful aging and uh, death and dying, <laughs> but I'm uh, immensely happy about that. And the two things that I would like to share with everybody, the first thing is basically I think the summary that the cessation of grasping is deathless. And we talk about death, and that's what I would like to take out. The other part of it is the experience at the temple, I think, which was a very, very powerful exercise. First part of the exercise, I fall asleep. And it was amazing that I was dreaming, and I was telling my mother, I I hardly remember my dreams, but I remember this part, which I was telling my mother, I'm dying at Amaravati Temple. <laughs> 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 and she re reached to touch me, my hand, and it was Stephen, I think my good friend here, was tapping me, tap, tap, because I was probably snoring at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> So it taught me three things. 
The first is I may not have time to listen to what the other is going to say when I'm dying. Then the other thing is I can't really plan the death because I didn't know I fall asleep there. And the third thing is it's awakened me up and then I realize I'm back at Amravati, so I'm not dead yet. <laughs> and the exercise went well afterwards. I kept my eyes open. And when Ajahn said this bell, that Ajahn will ring the bell and the bell will be our death. And it sort of shattered myself to a sort of a position where like suddenly the I lost the concentration and I thought like, oh my goodness, will he ring the bell in two seconds, two minutes, two hours, or 20 hours? Sort of. When it's going to ring, then I thought, when am I going to die? So I sort of had a panic and I was just concerned, like trying to think what, sort of get a clear mind and I suddenly realized so if this is the insight I had and I would like to share. If I'm conscious and I'm alive, I'll constantly breathe. I'll inhale and exhale. And if I reflect on that every breath, I die and I'm born. So no matter what, like whether it's going to be 20 years, 10 years, tomorrow or in two seconds, that I have that tool for me to take on with me and keep my consciousness alive. And thank you so much for that. Okay. Uh, hello. <laughs> um, um, I am really grateful to be here for lots of different reasons. One was I was just coming to tag along with Joseph, you know. So, but then I got the invitation to to uh, offer uh, my my bit as you English would say, with Ajahn uh, Bodhipala. And uh, so that was, uh, it was just wonderful to be invited. So, um, so that was initially the kind of excitement. And then um, as I reflected about this, um, it's been wonderful for me to see these two together and uh, the love they have for each other and the love for their teacher. But also, too, um, I heard Joseph say, somebody walked up to me and they remembered me. And it's like, wow. So this love that uh, people who knew Joseph in robes and the people who are meeting him for the first time, I just think it's just lovely. And sometimes he forgets his goodness and his light. So um, this is just really fabulous. And then we're going, this is like a magical mystery tour because we're going to where he, you know, used to roam around, you know, we're starting here and then we're going to Chithurst and I'm familiar, I know Ajahn Suchito and have sat with him. And then we're going to Harnam, which is really a treat because that's where Joseph was an abbot. And uh, so it's just, you know, it's just, I'm along for the ride and I'm really grateful. And uh, then we wind up in London where we can whoop it up a bit, you know. So. Um, <laughs> you ready, George? 
<laughs> yeah, and and then I get to meet George this afternoon, and I've heard about George, and he is so delightful, and uh, and a real rogue at heart, right, George? <laughs> and uh, and that's a real blessing too, because uh, it is really truly remarkable how without George uh, in this mix, this wouldn't have happened. I mean, maybe it would, but it. Maybe not in our lifetime. So, you know, uh, sadhu, 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 sir. It's really wonderful. Um, the final thing I'd like to say is um, I'm really interested in this topic about aging. And I'm really thrilled that there are so many young people, and I guess I should qualify this by maybe under 30, that are interested and it is true, uh, certainly in America, that it's a death-denying culture. And I think that's problematic for a lot of reasons that I won't belabor. Um, because I believe you have to talk about the things you're afraid of to become, to befriend them and to work with them. And my, my concern um, is that uh, I'm 58 and uh, I'm part of the boomer generation. I don't know what the term is in England, uh, but you know, we are, we are uh, our numbers should give us a lot of ability to bring this discussion, uh, per one person uh, after another. It starts somewhere about, okay, um, we could continue with the old paradigm about aging and, you know, retirement and these kind of paradigms that really are, I personally have not found very useful. Or we can mix it up and, you know, like we did in the 60s, you know, you know, shake, rattle and roll and, you know, get it started. And so I see this as a, a great opportunity um, and already... Um, Musong, the program director at the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies in Berry, Massachusetts, had this going forth idea. So, you know, across the continent, you've got Ajahn Amaro starting this, and he started this group growing forth. And so it's, it's great. So I'm really excited that we're finally beginning to peel back the onion. And, and, and I say this not just... I think that these conversations have to happen, and where it goes from there, uh, we'll see. But it's important, not just for my generation, but for future generations, so we can take something that's perfectly natural. And, uh, you know, none of us gets out of this alive. And, you know, um, change it for future generations so this is not looked at, a, at as a, a negative thing you know people need their elders we serve a purpose so I invite you to you know you know let's get this started okay thank you so much This is my third visit to Amravati in a very short time, within two months' time. Uh, Buddha's teaching has been part of my life for the past 20 years, but it's not anything direct because I lived most of my life in India and been practicing yoga and meditation together and then the pranic aspect of it. 
but not direct teachings of Buddha. But it, it would be weaven into the, the Hinduism culture as well. So because Buddha did not speak about soul, but there, where I come from is more of soul realization and self-realization. And the contrast is no soul at all uh, in Buddha's teaching as indirect. But in, in India, we, they don't speak about that. But the, the, the other eightfold path is woven into the culture and, and it's given to us. And the first time when I came here, uh, Agent uh, Amro was not there. I think he was visiting um, Thailand or some other place. And I think he, uh, on the end of the stay, he came in. Then before that, I was just observing this place and how it works and how the people are, what kind of vibration I am in. And the senior monk um, was was very uh, good at chanting and, and all this were disciplined. But when Agent Ambro came, he, he started with smile. And uh, it was so much interesting vibration from him. Um, and the jovialness, the, the happiness uh, uh, sharing, and when I had a chance, I, I, I said to myself, I want to speak to this person. Who is it? What is his name? Uh, and I inquired it. And then I had a chance. I had to wait. And then when I went and spoke to him, uh, he was asking, where are you from? What do you do? And all kind of this things. And then when I said, Southern India, I've been there. And then he said, where, I said, where, where have you been? And then he said, uh, in a place called Polachi. Where in Pulaji, that's and he, he pointed out um, he went to a meditation center where they teach meditation and all, and that was exactly a, where I learned my meditation. And he has met my guru, and he even said that I went on his retreat. Oh, this is getting crazy. I mean, this is. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I, I've, I've learned his teachings, and uh, I know this person. There was an English American woman there. Uh, and I said, Uma, yeah, yeah that's, that's the one, that's the one. So I said, well, what is happening? And then uh, I was laughing from inside. I mean, so much happiness. And so he's cook. He, he just connected me directly to the, uh, my origin of my spirituality because my mom took me in 1992 when I was just about 15 or 16 and then uh, told this is, this is Guru, this is meditation, this is yoga, and this is uh, uh, biomagnetism and all those, all those things. Within, within a week or 10 days of say, the teenager, uh, became like a spiritualist, just, just, you know, because, uh, you, you know, you all know how it works in India. The parents, parents work the brain out and then, <laughs> then push you forward. <laughs> uh, when you're a teenager, obviously when you're grown up, then this, the case is different. But um, I didn't want to go into that, but uh, whenever I tried to get away from the spirituality, somehow spirituality pulled, pulled, pulled me back into this because I just wanted to have a normal normal drink just like the way we Westerners are in out of the world. But somehow this, this pulls me back in. And this, the, the connection, uh, when I was observing, uh, because the, the first thing we are told in India is uh, observe Guru. That's the first thing um, when you go to a spiritual place or an environment like this. And I started to observe Agent Amro, because uh, I was so much um, allured and attracted and whatnot. You can put any more words on that. And then I was very observing his teachings and the way he puts in, and the way he goes to the, the Sutta library and then picks the Sutta and then radically gives to you in just no, no, no time. I said, how can you do that? How could you do that? I don't have a memory like that. Uh, and then, and, and, and when you have the question, 
and in deep meditation the answer comes then and there and i asked that when i am i have a no thought state and then uh, what can i do from then on he said just let go the ahankara that just leave the i and then i was working on this how to let go this how to let go the i wherever whatever whenever however i do it's the i in there how to get rid of this i i don't want to be that i <laughs> that was my the whole uh, um, uh trying out in this 5 6 days um and then um, i felt that a lot of emptiness uh, most of the time my meditation is emptiness uh, obviously i do the chakra meditation so the all the chakras goes boom uh, with a lot of energy flowing in and out so i just said okay let me get rid of the energy first let me just concentrate on the i so the i part how to get rid of this so called i so in everything i do i have the i uh, and i couldn't i couldn't do when i when i went to the emptiness oh felt i felt okay i am there okay let the i is not there but i am there oh the i is not there i am there <laughs> but again again when i wake up and come to reality i is there and then i had this um uh, conversation with um uh, uh, joseph as well um let go i he said a very simple truth uh, the, your, your body is in present rest of them may be anywhere else your body is the present so i felt yes yes all the way we are looking somewhere else whatever what not the body itself is in presence so just be in the presence forget everything else and then when the emptiness and the just the, the presence itself combines together it's 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 nothing and i i enjoy that the state of nothingness in 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 this realm of retreat and obviously uh, the guided meditation i've practiced n number of times so that was not what i was really looking or impressed on but uh, the, con- the 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 concept of guided meditation is very vital because it's 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 it is um, it's like a rehearsal that you do just before death and obviously the same kind of experience which uh, joseph had in his helicopter i had it when i was a teenager in a cycle between a lorry and a truck i mean a, a lorry and a, and and a, and a car because in india you know how traffic is so <laughs> you, just, <laughs> you just don't have to use your traffic i mean driving skills or bicycling skills you just have to trust your reflex action because anything can go <laughs> anyway so i had to be like go in between these two vehicles just within a flip of 3 or 4 seconds there was no no other way because this truck goes this way and this this car comes this way and there was no way to go on the either side just just in between and you never you, you just go for a blank for a couple of uh, micro macro seconds uh, and then you come back oh it's gone okay i'm back i'm alive <laughs> i'm okay i'm all right see my life square my body those kind of uh, experience that i could relate um, uh, from small experiences of mine with 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 a big experience of joseph uh, in in his in his times in in the helicopter i could imagine so how hard it would have been so i can take those experiences because this this is this is not available every, everywhere but uh, from darkly from from the from from the person who has experienced and shared and it it, it correctly matches with yours 
and there you can relate it and then you can take home the experience with you and then you can um, recall it when, when it's required and then go for the peaceful state whenever you are called for going. And obviously, again, um, uh, Agent Amro said that um, why look for rebirth um, when you can attain it in this birth itself and cut the cycle of birth? Um, that, that impressed me a lot because most of us uh, fancy that, okay, I've been so-called, I've not achieved this, this, this things, so I'm going to achieve, I'm, I'm, I'm nearly 70, I'm, I'm going to die in, in, in a few years, I'm going to achieve in the next life. Or, and again, the same things, it's all materialistic. So, so even, even at 70, or, people think that uh, uh, when, youngsters, uh, when youngsters like us um, know, know meditation very engaged in, in 20s and in, uh, in late teens, it's very good for them. And, but on the other side, it's very hard for, for a young person to be, become a meditator and take the life through in the terms of spirituality. But the same context, uh, I, I would like to say, even uh, on the, when you're age, uh, when you're in old age, if you're able to meditate, that's it, that's enough. Uh, enlightenment or anything can happen any any moment, just, just when you're on the path of Dhamma and uh, just the meditation itself, it will take you there, right there. So man is never late for anything. So we all can cut the cycle of birth right here, just this moment, uh, because we know we have been guided in the right fashion. It may be an intense experience or a light experience or no experience at all, but still um, the aspect of it, the experience, the time we have been here, uh, spent here, well spent, unwell spent, whatever, just spent here, well, well, will take us right there. When when the moment comes, we will be all ready for that. I, I recall a story that uh, <laughs> uh, it's not a big story; it's just two lines. A, 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 a pig running um, after a, in a stupa, uh, it was chased by a dog, but it no, didn't know that it was running along around the stupa. But it just ran around the stupa, and after it, would, it got killed, it, it was still had a very good. Um, but and then it lived a life, a happy life, and attained nibbana. But the, the, the point is, um, knowingly or unknowingly, when you do a good, there's always um, a higher result in a higher plane. So very good. Thank you very much. Thank you. So I see the the uh, little clock is uh, saying twenty past ten. So the days and nights have been relentlessly passing, and. Uh, so um, I suspect people's energy is starting to, to wane. There's been very delightful and wonderful uh, offerings this evening that everyone has shared. So uh, if there's anybody who is burning with ardor <laughs> to share this evening and will not be able to, to rest without that, then please feel free to speak. Otherwise, I think we can probably uh, call this to a close. That be good. We can maybe uh, close the evening with a sharing of blessings as a way to uh, offer up all the the goodness of gathering together as a, as a crowd. Also, uh, I was very glad that uh, Chinta was able to come. She's uh, uh, been able uh, just coming in the evenings because of her own, uh, medical condition has been so horrible that <laughs> she hasn't. Been, she would have loved to have been able to be sitting with us and doing the retreat during the daytime as well, but uh, 
because of her physical problems, she couldn't manage that, but is able to come every evening. So I'm glad you could make it. <laughs>